Our scripture reading this morning is coming from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 11 and 17 to 18. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the law, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I should possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and lay each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. 17. When the sun had come down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I gave this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Most of us have uh, experienced that sense of feeling uh, that God is not honoring his promises. Maybe you've prayed something this week, you've asked for help in terms of your finances, you've even gone to scripture and, and you've seen where it says don't worry about what you're gonna eat, drink, or wear. Your heavenly father knows you need these things, you ask for these things and they don't come. <clears throat> we can tend to question the faithfulness of God to his promises we can begin to become disappointed because God hasn't answered our prayers in the way that we think he ought. We all struggle with trying to uh, reconcile ourselves to a God who sometimes seems to be slow in keeping his promises. <clears throat> now, uh, promises are important. Uh, Emerson says that, that all promise outruns performance. All promise outruns performance. What he means by that, I think, is that we can make promises, but the performance of keeping the promises are never adequate to what the promises are that we make. Now, this is important. Why? Because we live on promises. Our lives are built around promises, marriage, work relationships, government, 
I mean, we all plan, we even orient our future around promises. I'll do that next week. I'll call you next week. Or, uh, promises are central to how we live our lives. And when we wonder if God keeps promises, this is a real threat to faith, leading us to doubt and disappointment, discouragement. God makes big promises. I mean, it does when you look at the scriptures, they are big promises. You know, if you remember now, we started back in Genesis 1 last year, and and we, we see the, the first couple fall before God. They rebel. They're not satisfied with his way of doing things. They want to usurp his position. And even in their fall, which drives them out of the garden, away from the presence of God, they're moved into what the scripture often calls the wilderness of life. It's our world right now, the brokenness, injustice, lack of truth that was prayed about by Josh. This is a difficult world we live in. But even in that, God made a promise that Adam and Eve would have a son and that this son uh, would crush the head of the serpent. That means that the son would undo the curse that was brought about by our sin, bringing us back into a land of promise. Now that promise that God made to Adam and Eve, of course, was furthered when he speaks to Noah. Remember, remember back in Genesis 5, 29, Noah is named and he says, and he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So in Noah rested the hope that would lead us back to a land of promise rather than the land of curse that we dwell in. So in Noah, a son would come. That son from chapter three is now seen in chapter five, a son that would lead us away from this land of burden. Of course, that ended, went sideways in the Tower of Babel, but God's faithful to his promises. He gives the same promises to what we call a second Adam when he speaks to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Remember, be fruitful, you're gonna be, he's gonna say you're gonna have descendants, you're gonna be a nation, you're gonna be a blessing to the world. The same kind of promises given to Adam are now to Abram. So the whole plan of God, the whole promise of God now centers on this man, Abram. In fact, the rest of the book deals with it. They just trace out the generations of Abram, right? Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Those are the four generations that we'll speak about. So we've been looking at Abram. Abram's important to us because from him, God promised a son will come and this son will crush the head of the serpent, bringing us back to God. That's what we want, right? We wanna be with God, don't we? I mean, even as best as it is here, it can't even compare to what it would be with God. But our passage in Genesis 15 kind of steps out of that for a moment. It's this dialogue between God and Abram. And here's what we're gonna see, kind of three movements here. One is that God is gonna, he's gonna reassure Abram and his faith. He's gonna reassure him that the promises are trustworthy. And then secondly, he's gonna reward Abram for having faith in the promises. He's gonna reward him with, with righteousness, and, and then he's going to confirm the veracity of his promises in seven to 21. So those are kind of the three movements. First, he reassures or reaffirms the promises. Look with me back at one to five. He says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? I continued childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look to the heavens and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. So he says, After these things. So, after what things? Well, after chapter 14, right? He had just defeated those four eastern kings. And we see that Abram's now in this period of peace, but peace doesn't always mean tranquility. The lack of conflict doesn't mean peace necessarily. It seems that he was fearing, he was afraid of the reprisal of these kings, regathering, reconstituting their armies and coming back and finishing the work that they should have done. Otherwise, why would God say, fear not? He was fearing. You see him, a man of faith. This is a picture of us. He walks in faith, he falls in faith, he regains faith, he struggles with faith. You see him struggling with faith here in fearing now, will these armies come back and destroy us? But he's not just fearing that. You see he's struggling with the faith, the promise that God had given to him. He says, your reward will be great. This is God speaking to Abram, first time directly. Your reward will be great. A lot of theologians think, well, that means that he's going to get a lot of the plunder. Remember, he forsook all the plunder from the king of Sodom. He said, you keep it all. I don't want any of it. I don't even want to strap your sandal. Uh, maybe he's regretting it a little bit. And boy, it'd be nice to have a little bit of extra plunder maybe just hanging around. I, I don't think that's what he's looking for. When he says, your reward is great. Notice what follows. He says, what will you give me for I continue childless? His, his fear, his struggle in faith is that he doesn't have a son like God promised. It's been probably 10 years since Genesis 12. He doesn't have a son yet. A lot had probably gone back to Sodom. That's where we'll find him in chapter 19. And, and Eliezer was not his own son. And so he's struggling. Now, I want you to understand the struggle that Abram's having here. He's not just looking to have little feet running around the house. He, he's not looking just, hey, I got to give my stuff to someone. I'd like it to be my own, not someone else. Abram is a man of faith. He knows the promise of God that was given to Adam, that was given to Noah, was given to him. He knew that it would be his son that would ultimately be the one that brings about the redemption of God's world. He knew that it was his son that would be a son of blessing. Now remember, the blessing isn't, hey, go be blessed. It isn't help you have a blessed day. The blessing is in contrast to the curse. So the curse that came upon in Genesis 3 that's ruined our world, we need to be blessed. We need to undo that curse that we might be with God again. So Abram knew that his son would be, or his son's son, that his ascendant would be the one to bring about the reversal of all that happened in Genesis 3. And that's why he's struggling. He's 85 probably at this point. Sarai's wife's been barren for years and years and years and years of their marriage. And, and there's, there's no hope for him. He's wavering, he's disappointed. And that's why God says, Eliezer won't be your heir. It will be one from your own body. And then he takes them outside. Now remember, remember I explained to you a long time ago when we met Abram? He was a moon worshiper from the Chaldeans. And God says, look to the sky. Count the stars if you can. If you can number them, that's how many your descendants will be. God's reaffirming. God's 
assuring him. He's wavering, he's tottering. God doesn't stand aloof and far away and cast his judgment upon this man. I've already done all this for him. Look at him waver again. No, God comes in mercy. Uh, Folks, just for a minute, you know, I want to remind you that doubt and disbelief are different. You know, disbelief is an active distrust in the things that God has said. Doubting is different. Doubting is often associated with just a failure to understand or a struggle. You know, when providence goes this way and the promises go this way, and it's like, what do we do with that? There are periods of doubt. What we find here in the text is that we don't want to back away from God when we doubt. And we don't want to white-knuckle it and just say, nope, nope, I'm not going to doubt, and I'm, not, I'm just going to be spiritual. I'm gonna... No, 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 you see what Abram does. He lays it all out before the Lord. Notice what he says. You have given me no, you've given me no offspring. He's not blaming God. He's not holding God in contempt. He believes God, but he hasn't done it yet. You know, this is the beauty of the Psalms of lament. You know, it's a type of psalm that you see among the 150 in the middle of the Old Testament. You you see these, it's in Psalm 3, Psalm 10, Psalm 13, probably as many as 30%. 40% have lament in there. Lament is a language that God gives to us to express our disappointment, our doubting. So David says, why do you stand so far off, God? How long, O Lord? Why have you forsaken me, God? Those are the cries of the faithful to a God who's merciful when we don't understand. Uh, So I want to encourage you to appeal to God. You're struggling in faith. Don't shy away from God. Don't remove yourself from God's presence by saying, well, I can only come if I'm full of faith. No, go to him. Like in Mark 9, Jesus had come off the Mount of Transfiguration. And there was a man with a son who was demonized, throwing himself into the fire, trying to kill himself. The disciples couldn't heal him. So he comes to Jesus. Jesus says, do you believe? He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Isn't that beautiful? Just gut honesty. I do believe. Help my unbelief. All of us have this kind of mixture. So so does this change your view of God? You know, when you doubt or you begin to slide into despair, run to God, lay out his promise. Spurgeon said, pray the promises. Just pray them. God, you said this. God, you're steadfast in love. God, your righteousness goes to the heavens. God, you're enthroned in the heavens. You know, that's what he did. You've given me no offspring. Maybe grab a brother or sister in faith and and be honest with them. Just say, I'm really struggling right now to believe. Uh, Would you please remind me of these truths that I know? This is the beauty of church membership. It's it's the beauty of being known within your church that you can go somewhere and be honest. Uh, Please don't fear judgment of a brother or sister. We all struggle with doubt. We all struggle with doubt. And, And we need one another. Let them be like the friends of the paralytic that kind of carried him to Jesus. Let them carry you. Walk behind their faith while you struggle. So I I think we see this here, but I think one more thing we see in this first part is, do you see the visions that Abram has? And and he hears the voice of God, and we think, boy, if I could just see it, you know, or if I could just hear God, you know, then it'd all be different. They're just vehicles, the visions and the voice or the miracles, they're just vehicles to relate to us a truth about God that we need. Uh, 
to live in this life. Uh, that's all miracle. We, we often make much of those extraordinary events with God. I don't deny their value. And I, and I, don't, and, and I appreciate it when we see them. But they're only communicating a truth of God that is to feed our soul. In a way, they're like a flashlight. You know, when you're looking for something in a dark closet, you use a flashlight, and, and when you finally find the object of value that you want, you don't just stop and praise the flashlight. No, you, you go after what you wanted. You enjoy that. The flashlight is a means to get you there. That's all the miracles and the visions are doing. So be careful to not overstate their weight and value. They're meant to lead you to God and to a truth about God that can sustain you in the, in the harshness of this wilderness. So that's the first thing that you see. You see God reassuring Abram in faith. Uh, but then secondly, you see him reward Abram. Look with me at 15.6. He says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, uh, this isn't the first time Abram believed the Lord. Of course, he believed the Lord when he left Ur of the Chaldeans, right? And, and we saw him believe the Lord when he came back and he, and he took on those four kings. So, so the, the Hebrew grammar would indicate that he believed and is believing. There's an active trust in, in the Lord. Notice all the caps. He believes in the Lord, that is in Yahweh, the personal name of God. He believes in Yahweh. You know, it's interesting, John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, he said that he believed in the promiser before he believed in the promises. So we believe in God. He believes in Yahweh, in his character, in his faithfulness. And by extension, he believes in the promises that come from the one that he trusts. So when it says he believed in the Lord, He's saying that he believed in Yahweh and in, by extension, all the promises that are going to come from him. The promise that was just stated in verse 5. You will have a son from your own body. So Abram isn't simply believing in God, making him a theist. No, he believes in God who is going to bring about a son from his own body, and this son is going to bring about a reversal of the curse leading us to blessing. He doesn't know the particulars of how this son will crush the head of the serpent, but he, do, he does know that he is going to come and save. He knows it will be a son. He knows it will be a deliverer. You say, well, how do you really know that, Tom? Well, actually, Jesus tells us this in John 8. John 8, 56, Jesus confronted with the Pharisees. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He knew that he would have a son that would bring about the deliverance of all things. He believed. Now, when I say believe, last week I tried to explain a little bit. Believe is not I know it or I'm aware of it or I understand it. It does involve those things for sure. <clears throat> but to believe is to rest, it's to trust. It's an act of, the Hebrew word means you can be leaning on it. You know, like you sit in your chairs, you don't wonder if it's going to give way. You put all the weight of your body when you sit down. The trust that we're speaking about here is entrusting the safety of our soul to one who will come from Abram, who will deliver. It's an active trust. And notice how, how God rewards Abram's trust. He said it's counted to him or reckoned to him or imputed to him as righteousness. In other words, there's a value given to Abram's faith. Abram believed that God would bring forth a son through his body who would bring about redemption of the whole world, and he trusted in it. 
and it was credited, it was reckoned to him. In other words, it wasn't based on Abram's obedience. Many of the Jews in Jesus' day thought that, you know, Abram's faithfulness, you know, in circumcision or in offering up Isaac as a sacrifice, that is what made him righteous. But this takes place before all those things. He's declared righteous before anything had been done. The righteousness is attached to his faith, his trust. Now, now this is the first time in the Bible that belief and righteousness or belief and justification are together. Paul makes all kinds of work out of this. Now let me read you a passage in Romans 4. Paul says, what then shall we say was gained by Abram, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That right standing, forgiven, innocent. I can stand before God, I'm in the clear. That's what righteousness be, in a right position. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift. Not as a gift, but as his due. The one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Believes in the one who would justify the ungodly. That's how we're made right. In other words, that's how we are forgiven. That's how we're brought into a right relationship with God. It's not in what you do. It's not in who you might become. It's not in the relationships that you might yet form. It, it, the righteousness, being right with God, being in the clear, being innocent, is through faith in him giving a son who would produce a righteousness so that we could stand before God. Paul says the same thing in Galatians. He says, does he who supply the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by, healing with, or by hearing with faith? Just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So all the promises to Abraham that flow to his descendants, we are his descendants if we have faith in the son that was coming. I hope this is clear because what it tells you is that the saints in the Old Testament are saved in the same way the saints in the New Testament are. There, there aren't multiple ways of saving. God has always saved through faith in his promises and the promise of a son given all the way back in Genesis chapter three. So faith is this active trust in the son. When you think about your own life, what's credited to your account? What, what's credited to you? If you saw yourself as an account, let's say, would you credit to it the works you've done, the people you know, the things you've met, monies you've given, the ministries you've performed. What, what's credited? What are you resting on that would make you right with God? Is it the promises that you're gonna change this or that part of your life and then God will accept you? Because for Abram, it, it's simply faith. And that's why he says in Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Do you seek God for this righteousness by faith? 
So you see here that God affirms or reassures Abram in faith, and then he rewards Abram in faith. Now, remember, this is what it means to be a Christian, is that we come to God in humility, broken by our sin, seeing we need one to come and lead us out of the wilderness that we exist in, the injustice, the the brokenness of our lives, both that we are burdened by, but we also burden others by our own brokenness. I encourage you to consider that. It's the only way to come to God is through his son. But we see a third thing in this passage, and that is the confirmation or confirming the veracity of the promise that he makes. In other words, here we have Abram, He is wavering. God assures him by reminding him in the stars of all the descendants, he believes it's credited him as righteousness. But now he's wondering, what about the land? You promised me both a son and you promised me the land. So look with me at seven and eight. He says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So you see Abram again, again kind of wavering. Now, I don't think he's faithless here. I mean, no more than Mary when she was told by Gabriel that she would have a child, though she's a virgin. She says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I mean, I mean th- there is a, a legitimate questioning in faith. God, how can this be? How can I receive this land? And notice what God does. He returns to his own character. He says, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh Adonai. I am the sovereign one over all things. And I've already brought you out of Ur. I've already done a great work in your life. Folks, what you see here is we're going to see a massive delay in the answer uh, to this promise that God makes to him. And in the delay, notice that he reminds Abram of who he is. This is really important if you're struggling right now and believing the promises of God. And nothing in your life seems to indicate that he's going to answer your promises. In fact, you know, providence is going this way. Everything God's providing for you is going this way. And God's promises are saying we're going to go that way. And you're saying, I don't see it. How can this be? Folks, remind yourself of who Yahweh is, who God is, the sovereign one, enthroned in the heavens, perfect, creates things with his word, and yet loves us by giving us his own son. You have to go to the character of God when there is a delay in the promises of God coming to fullness in your life. You have to go to the character of God. Who is God? Can he lie? He's not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he promise and not act? Does he speak and not fulfill? But not just that. He says, I brought you out. Each of us ought to know our personal spiritual histories. We all ought to know. You know, Carol and I just two nights ago, uh, we celebrated our 37th anniversary uh, last month, and um, we just talked about the nature of how God has saved us over and over and over. Not, not just, He saved us, but they kept saving our faith as we wandered and were disappointed or we struggled in life or the troubles that came upon. <clears throat> we have <clears throat> an event after event after event of God kind of swooping in and helping us remain faithful. 
Over and over, God, we need to know, do you know your history? Not just do you know when you were converted. That, that's important to remember, never forget that. John Newton, I'm a great sinner, he's a great savior. He never forgot that conversion. But it's all the other things that God does to save us. Do you know those things? Can you reflect on them? Because what they do is they build up a catalog of faith. He's done all this for me. He's not gonna drop me now. It's an encouragement to us. I encourage you the same thing. But notice what he does next. So after God tells him, I'm the one who brought you out. So yes, you will possess the land. But then he gives him this kind of weird covenant ceremony. Look with me at 15, verse 9 to 16. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. So he created like an aisle between them. You know, kind of splayed them out like that. He says, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, this is weird for us Westerners, right? I mean, cutting animals and putting them across from each other and creating... And let me just try to explain it a little bit. This was the way, in fact, the Hebrew word is literally to cut a covenant. You cut a covenant. And that would be that two equal parties would come together. They would make a promise to one another. I won't pass this property line. I won't do this. I'll do this for you. Whatever, whatever the covenant was around, the promises made, the two parties would, would cut up these animals, and you can just imagine the blood filling the dirt, and you can, it, it would be a bloody mess, but they would walk through those animals as kind of this self-cursing. In other words, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, this is what will happen to me. So it, it's a promise that if I don't keep it, that I will be torn in half like these animals. Uh, so so, so that, that's the idea here, right? So hang with me. So the animals are there separated from each other. There's the all between them. And then you have this deep sleep come upon Abram and dread. So what God, what's God doing here? Well, he's explaining the delay in the promise. This, he tells him that your descendants who will possess the land, uh, they will first go into a land of exile. They will be sojourners. They will be servants in a land, not their own. And they will be there for 400 years. Then I will bring them out. You know, think about the parallel now from Genesis chapter 12. Adam was also, or Abram was also brought out of Egypt. I will bring your descendants out with great possessions. So he's saying to him that there will be a delay. There will be a delay in the answer and the fullness of this promise. You will die without receiving the fullness of the promise. There will be a delay. So what do we do with this? Why? Why does God delay his answers? We, we call out in the middle of crises, and he doesn't answer. And we think, why not? I mean, I, I'm, I'm in desperate need right now. 
Well, well, there's a lot of reasons that we see in this for delay. Uh, Delay, God's delay is often to purify, sanctify, change us, refine us. It, It begins to show us in that time of delay and struggle, we see what are we really trusting in? What are we really loving? Is this really the best thing? How many times have you prayed for something and then later you didn't get it, you were thankful? The delay was helpful to understand. I don't always know exactly what to pray for. The delay here is significant because it was making him long for something more. To just give him the land, that's not the promise, remember? The promise was I'm gonna lead you out of a land of curse, cursedness, and I'm gonna lead you to a land of blessing, I'm gonna lead you to God himself. So if he just said, take the land right now, Abram, that's not what he really wants. He wants a heavenly land, a land with God. A land where he could, like Adam and Eve, walk with God in the cool of the day. We know this because in Hebrews chapter 11, we read, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He never wanted the land as the land. He wanted the land that God would be dwelling in. The land of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the land was all pointing to. To just give him a piece of of ground was not the answer to the promise made. The blessing to the nations. The blessing is the reversal of the curse. We still live in the curse. Do we not want to be with God? The best day of your life won't even compare to the worst day of life with God. That's what we want. That's what Abram's looking for. The delay is to draw us to a weariness of this life that we would grow hungry for God. That that we would want, don't give me the best day here. Like Paul said, I'd rather depart and be with the Lord. I'm only here on your account for the progress and joy of your faith. That's what's happening here. Delays are often God's gracious provision to wean us from thinking that we can find everything out there. Listen, the job that you wanted is quickly within a few months, you see your other workers, the nature of the job, well, I really want that job, you know, and then then you finally get that job. Well, you know, that other one will be the best one. And it's a ladder of discontentment. You keep going up the ladder. It never, this world is built to never satisfy people made in the image of God. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy it, we don't thank Him for it, we do. We just see them as shafts of light leading us back to the sun. That's, that's what he's teaching us here in the delay. But there's something else that happens here. So you have these animals that are cut, they're bleeding all over the ground. And God then, notice what it says, look with me at 17. And 18, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give you this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. What's happening here? Well, this flaming pot and torch, it's a theophany. A theophany is an appearance of God. Uh, how do I know that? Well, in, remember in, Gen- in um, Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in a flaming bush. And of course, he leads the people through the wilderness, you know, pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. 
He appears on Mount Sinai as fire and smoke. So th these are representing, they're, they're picturing God. God is now walking through the animals. Now, now, what that means is the covenant he's making with Abram, the covenant that I will save you, I will bring forth a son, I will lead us to a land of promise, I will bring us to a land where the curse will have no more effect, I will make sure it happens. It's all on me. He walks, it's a unilateral, it's an unconditional covenant, this Abrahamic covenant. But what I want you to know is, what's he doing through the animals? Now, if they're equal parties, they both walk through the animals. But whenever you had a covenant, like a Hittite covenant, which we have copies of, we, we've seen them, and you have a powerful king, a suzerain king, they're called, and you have a lesser king, a vassal king, the vassal king would always go through the animals. Why? Because the suzerain has all the power. He doesn't need to bind himself. No, the vassal, the weak king that this powerful king could destroy, he binds himself to the covenant. And he's saying, if I don't do this, you can cut me in half. But in this case, it's God that goes through the animals. And this is incredible. God is binding himself by his own name to say, I will save you. I will bring you to a new heaven and new earth to be with me forever. Now, folks, you know, when we want to engender confidence in somebody that we're making a promise to and they're not sure we're going to do it, what do we say? I swear I'm going to do it. Uh, sometimes, as we were kids, I swear to God we'll do it. I promise to God. I, on his name, I'm going to do it. What we're doing is we're trying to increase the confidence that the person has in me keeping the promise. But God doesn't have anybody to go about. He doesn't have anybody but himself. And so he says, he walks through the flaming. He walks through the animals, through the bloody mess. Now, that, that's really significant. Uh, particularly because, you know, we have this table before us. You have this Abrahamic covenant God has promised, I will save you, Abram, and all your descendants, all those who have, remember back I read in Galatians just earlier today, I just read in Galatians, he says, and know then that it's those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So those of us who have faith in God's promised son to deliver us and make us righteous, we are inheritors of this promise that he will save us. Now that promise, this, this uh, Abrahamic covenant was a preparation for us to see a new covenant. And that's what we have at the table here. Jesus said in Luke 22, he says that a new covenant I make with you in my own blood, in my own blood. You see, the table is actually the fullness of that Abrahamic covenant. Jesus Christ has borne on himself our sin, our guilt, our covenant breaking. Oh, God kept his covenant, but none of us have kept the covenant. We've all been covenant breakers. But God has said, even if you break the covenant, I'm going through the animals. Jesus goes through the animals for us. We're covenant breakers. And Jesus went through. He was torn in half. He was scourged. He was pierced. He was nailed. He is the one that bears our covenant-breaking penalty. He does it alone. You didn't add anything to it. You'll never add anything to it. When God went through those animals, 
An author said he pronounced a death sentence on his son. It, it, was all, it was part of God's plan. He knows it. He knew it then. And now we come to this table. We think about the nature of him bearing our curse. Paul says it this way to us. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The spirit confirming to us were Abraham's children participating in his bloody work to save us so that we can now be assured broken as we are, that through faith alone in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, we'll be saved to him forever, which changes the way we live in the wilderness right now, because our future is solid, it's certain. This is why this meal that we celebrate every month, it's a covenant renewal. We're renewing the covenant. How do we renew it? We're not, we're not re-sacrificing Christ no, we're just, we're being renewed in this covenant as we think about it. So if, if you're here, you've been doubting, you know, let the table remind you of his mercy. If you've been distant and distracted from God, let his love draw you back to him. If you've been dry, allow this action of self-sacrifice to to strengthen your desires. If you feel unworthy, and as I mentioned last week, so many of us just struggle with this sense of unworthiness. You look at a, the bread broken and, and the cup of blood and you're reminded he fashioned and fulfilled a covenant for which I only receive blessings from but can't add to. It, if you really understand this, it will not engender a license to sin. It won't engender a casualness with God's holiness. It will draw you to him, but now out of joy. And so holiness will be a pursuit of joy, not drudgery. So let's take a moment and, and ask God. And let me just remind you of, of one verse, too. In 2 Timothy 2, 13, he says, If we are faithless... He is faithful, and you see that here. So the table is for those who have points of faithlessness. So let's take a moment and just silently confess our sins or silently just meditate and enjoy all that God has done in Christ, and I'll pray for us in just a moment. <laughs> 